RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your internet privacy by visiting expressvpn.com slash missionlog, and you can get three extra months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash missionlog to protect your data. This episode is also brought to you by Theragun. Try the Theragun Gen 4 for 30 days, starting at only $199 at theragun.com slash missionlog. This episode is also brought to you by Eagle Moss Hero Collector and the brand new The Orville Official Ships Collection. The first ships in the collection, including the Orville itself, are available now at herocollector.com slash Orville. Use code MISSION10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase with free shipping. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 377, Business as Usual. into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we make you an offer you can't refuse. Watch Star Trek with us, then sit back and think about the morals, meanings, and messages in each and every episode. This week, business as usual. The one where Quark gets an offer he can't... Uh, uh, Wait, no, I'm, I'm sorry, you just did that joke. I, I didn't mean to step on it, Norman, my bad. Uh, I, I guess this is the one where an alien wants to say hello to his little friend. Let me make this easy on you, John. It's yep. maybe the one where Quark learns not to mess with Haggith. Don't ever mess with Haggith. And, oh, oh, okay, or, or the one where uh, Quark learns the first rule, don't ever use your own supply. Look, uh, no, all right. None of these are going to work uh, without the original context or at least a lot of swearing. So we'll just move on. Uh, do the contact information. We'll, we'll figure that part out later. If I may paraphrase uh, one Mr. Uh, Montgomery Scott, I, the haggith is in the fire for sure. <laughs> Mission Log relies on your participation, so that's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving us a like or a share on Facebook or Twitter where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Tell others about us there, and if you're inclined to leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful, and we'll share those in a future supplemental. You can reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod, or by calling 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com, and remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Hey, uh, we'll get to the trivia in just a minute, as usual. But first, a little business, uh, meaning specifically a word from our sponsor, Eagle Moss and the Orville Ship Collection. Uh, of course, you know that these are developed in partnership with and based on Seth MacFarlane's hit science fiction comedy drama, the ships of the brand new The Orville Official Ships Collection. They're available only from Eagle Moss Hero Collector, the first ships in that collection, the Planetary Union ship, the USS Orville ECV-197, and its shuttle, the ECV-197 
one are available right now directly from the Eagle Moss shop for only $29.95 each with free shipping. There's even an oversized XL edition of the Orville available for only $74.95. No matter what you order, use code MISSION10 at checkout to get 10% off your entire purchase. And if you're a fan of the Eagle Moss quality of their starships, and I know many of you are, you'll also be glad to know that these ships are also based on a careful study of the models created for the use in the series, and they are highly detailed, made of the same die-cast metal and high-quality ABS materials like in the rest of the Eagle Moss ships and especially in their Star Trek line. And they are also hand-painted for stunning accuracy. Each ship also comes with a display base, plus a collector's magazine filled with concept art, interviews, and behind-the-scenes details of the Orville TV series, of which there is very little of, unfortunately, I have to say, because mm-hmm. it just is. Additional ships are slated to join the collection soon. Hopefully, hopefully, fingers crossed, the Krill, the Kalon, hopefully more. <laughs> but these are the ones that you can get now while you can. You know, I, I have to say, I have the shuttle sitting on my desk right now, and we all know that Eagle Moss's quality is great anyway because we've seen their uh, Star Trek collection so much. This and uh, the Orville itself, uh, two words mm-hmm. I would use to describe these. I would say elegant and sculptural. Yes. I think there's just a really nice design to these, and, and of course, they're executed so well because, hey, it's, it's Eagle Moss. That's what they do. For details, including comprehensive views of each ship and ordering information, those can be found at herocollector.com slash Orville. And remember to use your code MISSION10, that's M-I-S-S-I-O-N and the number 10, at checkout to get 10% off your entire purchase. Now I'm going to make the audience an offer they can't possibly refuse. How could they possibly refuse John Champion with this week's trivia? Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, So trivia for business as usual. This one was written by Bradley Thompson and David Weddle. Okay, remember these two? Uh, Writing as a team way back with rules of engagement back in season four. They worked together almost exclusively then and in later sci-fi on television. It was Thompson who bonded with Iris Stephen Bear over their mutual love of Sam Peckinpah. Then he managed to squeeze in his friend David for the gig when Ira and the rest of the DS9 staff started taking notice of their pitches. It shouldn't be a surprise then that even though this is their script, it was Ira who had a hand in shaping it. He wanted to explore Quark a bit more, find out where his limits are, and that was exactly the inspiration he handed to David and Bradley. This episode was directed by Sadig El-Fadil. Well, there's a familiar name. You will recall that Alexander Sadig went by this, his given name, on the first three seasons of DS9. Now he's making his television directorial debut and going by this credit. He, like many before him and after him, did the old Star Trek director's school. It didn't seem to stick with him, though. This is the first of what will be his only two professional directorial credits. Now let's talk about guest stars. Cork's cousin finally drops by for a visit. That's Josh Pace as Gala, who we've heard so much about. Josh is from New York and kicked around live performance before getting into TV in the late 80s. Very soon after, he landed a major role as Raphael in 1990's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Plenty of TV and feature film roles followed, including recurring spots on Law & Order and Law & Order SVU. 
we'll catch Josh as Gala one more time in the next season of DS9. We also have a couple of really standout roles played by a couple of standout actors, both known to different generations for playing heavies. As Haggath, we have Stephen Burkhoff, who I immediately remembered from the James Bond film Octopussy as Orloff. Now, bounce around in his career and you'll find him in films like A Clockwork Orange or, again, playing a bad guy in the original Beverly Hills Cop or in a Matt Smith Doctor Who episode as the foil Shakri. Steven's not always the villain, though. He turns up in a few Jerry Anderson projects like Space Precinct and playing the cool Captain Minto in UFO. Later career highlights include the Borgias and Vikings, this is the only time we get to see Steven on Star Trek. Finally, we welcome back an icon. The late, great Lawrence Tierney appears here as weapons buyer, the Regent of Palomar. We've seen Lawrence once before when he played another imposing figure, that of Cyrus Redblock in TNG's The Big Goodbye. You can go back to that mission log or any number of other sources to hear more about a career that spanned six decades and brought Lawrence from gangster and detective films of the 1940s to a run on Hill Street Blues in the 80s to working with Tarantino in the 90s. We lost Lawrence in 2002 after he gave us an extraordinary body of work. Just when Cork thought he was out, they pull him back in. While Norman tells you how it went down, I'll be engaging my mobster protocols. Prologue. Dax and Quark are engaged in a game of Tongo. Well, at least Dax is. As Jadzia presses Quark to make his move, he waves her off. Distracted by his data pad, which has just relayed to him that all of his stocks have crashed. And well, simply put, he's in financial ruin. Ever since the bar was shut down by Brunt and the FCA, Quark's been banned from doing business with other Ferengi and suffering the consequences of such financial exile. And, as if right on cue, Quark's cousin Gala arrives with a business proposal which would make Quark wealthy beyond his dreams of avarice, wealthy enough to have the FTA beg for his reinstatement, wealthy enough to buy his own moon. All Quark has to do is help his cousin sell weapons. After all, with a 5% commission in the Quadrant's most lucrative growth industry, what does Quark have to lose? Act 1. It seems that Chief O'Brien literally has his hands full, with a very fussy baby Kiriyoshi who has finally fallen asleep. As Jake stops by to visit, the chief tells Jake that Keiko's gone for perhaps another two weeks, and that his regular babysitter is unable to sit for him at present. So, Big Brother Jake tries to reassure the chief that he can handle babysitting Kiriyoshi, until he can't. It appears that only being in his father's arms can keep Kiriyoshi calm and quiet. Having no other choice, O'Brien takes both Kiriyoshi and his diaper bag to work. Meanwhile in Quark's, after rattling a few chairs, tasting a few drinks, and even gazing at Morn to make sure Odo isn't hanging around, Gala's business associate, a well-heeled man named Haggith, walks into the bar looking forward to what Quark has described as an opportunity of a lifetime. Quark's hollow suites are the finest in the quadrant, and Quark has devised the perfect sales strategy to create the most technically accurate holographic replicas 
of their weapons arsenal for sale and to entice potential buyers. This way, no laws would be broken, and most importantly, Odo wouldn't be none the wiser. Quark, however, is a little concerned about Gala and Haggith selling arms to opposing sides, but in typical Ferengi fashion, Gala quips, but as they say, the riskier the road, the greater the profit. Haggith is pleased with the plan and is ready to do business, but warns Quark, don't ever cross me. And soon after, Quark demonstrates to both Gala and Haggith just how good of a salesman he really is as he closes his first successful hollow arms deal. The plan is working perfectly, and the three toast their new business partnership. Act 2. In Haggith's quarters, Quark sheepishly asks him when he would be seeing his share of the profits, to which Haggith explains that he has taken the liberty of making sure all of Quark's debts are paid first, so that there aren't any complications that may come with a partner who is encumbered by financial complications. The profits will come, but for now, Haggith apologizes to Quark with a small token of affection, a gift of Andorian glass beads worth a small fortune. During their weekly darts game, Dr. Bashir and Chief O'Brien are engaged in their usual and jovial repartee. This time, it's about Miles bringing Kiryoshi with him wherever he goes. But in typical O'Brien fashion, he shows Julian the error of his observations. Whenever he puts the baby down, he cries. And just as soon as he stops, once the chief picks him back up, to which Julian can't help but smile. Back at Haggett's, Quark is deep in the Umak's pleasure throws from his spoils, only to be arrested and whisked away by Odo, who, later on in his security station, warns Quark that he's onto his hollow weapons business affairs. Much to the constable's great dismay, Captain Sisko and Major Kira order Quark's release under the orders of the Bajoran Provisional Government. Ironically, they owe Haggith quite a debt, as he supplied arms to them during the Cardassian occupation, and Quark is released as a courtesy to Haggith. But Sisko warns Quark that if he so much as litters, he will suffer Sisko's wrath. As Haggith and Gallia reminisce about their lucrative Bajoran arms contracts, Quark is puzzled as to why, knowing the Bajorans didn't have the money for them. Haggith explains that allies in business relationships are at times far more valuable than money, a point not lost on Quark whose freedom came from such a benefit. Haggith's meeting is interrupted by Farak, one of his associates whose ineptitude in losing a major contract has proven another point to Quark. Never cross Haggith. It's bad for business, and perhaps even more. Later, in the bar, Gala arrives to inform Quark that he's thinking about stepping back and letting Quark take a bigger role in the business, which means a bigger percentage of the profits. Also, the regent of Palomar is coming to the station, a rich and powerful customer with very particular needs. And before Gala departs, he tells Quark that Farak suffered Haggith's famous wrath in the form of a warp core breach. Act 3. At the replimat, Quark tries to convince Jadzia that he had no choice but to do business with his cousin because financial ruin wasn't an option. But Dax left Quark coldly, only asking if he didn't feel guilty about what he was doing, why then ask her for her forgiveness? In the infirmary, Dr. Bashir convinces the chief that there's absolutely nothing wrong with Kiryoshi, except for the possibility of simple separation anxiety. However, it's clear that the chief is suffering some discomfort for constantly carrying his baby everywhere. Before the regent of Palomar arrives, Quark gives Haggith a culinary review of the banquet he's prepared for the evening, to which Haggith is infuriated with such incompetence. Just kidding! 
After sampling a dish and giving Quark a loving touch of umak, Haggith looks forward to what should be a very lucrative evening. As the evening's pleasantries with the regent wind down, he informs Haggith, Gala, and Quark as to why he has contracted their assistance. General Nasik, one of the most trusted of the regent's allies, has rebelled against him and therefore must be punished, first with a small overture of, oh, eight million lives at the start and 20 million dead soon after. Haggith believes that he and his associates can provide the weapons to accomplish such a goal. Quark tries to make light of the situation with a very unwelcoming remark, a remark Haggith explains away at a very poor example of Ferengi humor. Later on the promenade, Gala is concerned about Quark, wondering if his decision for Quark to succeed him was unfounded. But 28 million people, as Quark laments, to which Gala tries to persuade him that 10 million bars of gold-pressed latinum is a far easier way to look past civilizations and cultures who are already in the midst of killing each other anyway. Act 4. Waking and screaming from a nightmare, where all of his friends and comrades have accused him for sacrificing their lives for his financial gains, Quark asks himself the quintessential question when one's soul hangs in the balance. What have I done? In Ops, a very much alive Captain Sisko, Dax, Kira, and Miles, and pretty soon, all of the Ops staff, stare down at Kiryoshi, who is sound asleep in the engineering pit. The chief can't explain why. Maybe it's the humming of the consoles? Or the lights? To which Sisko suggests that the chief take a few days off. Not so much to relax and recuperate, but to find a more sustainable, work-appropriate solution. But, after the baby wakes up. Later... Dax is surprised to see Quark, with a Tongo wheel in tow, in her quarters. Accusing him of breaking in and trying to buy his way back into their friendship, Dax coldly tells Quark to leave and take that thing with him, Quark trying to explain and plead his case to her all the while. Steadying himself for what is to come, Quark takes one last look in the mirror and steals himself to accept his fate, understanding the hard and honest truth to his soul, searching question. What's one life compared to the lives of 28 million people? Act 5. Doing what Quark does best, he approaches Haggith with a new proposal, one that would give Quark the ability to assuage both Haggith's and the regent's apprehensions about their contracted expectations of the biogenic weapon needed to annihilate 28 million of the regent's dissidents. 17 million should just be acceptable as 28 million dead, right? With phase one of the plan initiated, on to phase two. Much to Gala's surprise, Quark introduces General Nasik, the region's mortal enemy and one who is also interested in purchasing arms from them, which would make the entire business venture obscenely profitable by dealing to both sides. A lesson taught to Quark by Haggith and Gala. The riskier the road, the greater the profits, remember? Duping the regent, General Nasik, and Haggith into a cargo bay, where Quark has supposedly stored his biogenic weapon, Quark slips out, and as the shooting begins, waves of security are alerted by Odo to investigate the phaser fire. Meanwhile, Worf visits Chief O'Brien to remind him that he was meant to make modifications to the USS Defiance deflector array. As Miles hands Karyoshi off to Worf, scrambling to get ready for his work, O'Brien is astounded as the baby falls quiet in Worf's hands. Miles places Karyoshi in his bassinet and quickly falls asleep, as Worf regretfully confesses to him that he never saw Alexander when he was a baby, calling the chief a lucky man. 
Later in the captain's office, and even though Cork's plan resulted in saving 28 million and one lives, the fallout of what happened did result in the death of the regent, and Haggath and Gala are going into hiding. Nope, let me reread that. Later in the captain's office, and even though Quark's plan resulted in saving 28 million and one lives, the fallout of what happened did result in the death of the regent and Haggath and Gala going into hiding. However, there is the rather expensive issue of all the repairs needed to fix the damages to the cargo bay, for which Quark and Cisco are happy to work out a payment plan. Finally, in Dax's quarters, it seems that all is forgiven, as Dax, in her own way, understands the lengths and risk Quark put himself through to stop the Regent's plan of mass genocide. However, a gift is a gift, no matter if made under emotional duress as the two friends spin the tongo wheel, laughing all the while, and once again, as friends. The end. All right, look, before we get into anything else, because I didn't have it in my notes, and, and you, you read about uh, Worf taking care of the baby, and all I could think of is this Worf saying, like, well, I'm really good at this. I, I, I guess if I had a child of my own, then, uh, I would be, <laughs> then I would be perfectly suited for being a father. I didn't even want to go there yet. No, I know. Not yet. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So just plant that little seed right there. All right, so we'll move on. Yeah. Um, it, it kind of goes without saying, but I, I do love how in many episodes we, we see the Ferengi sort of knee-jerk reaction to immediately negotiate for a bigger cut, no matter what the deal is, no matter if they know any details about it at all. Because when Gala comes to Quark and is like, I'll cut you in for 5%, and just the next word out of Quark's mouth is 10 <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it just doesn't even he doesn't know anything about this at all. And then I love that mm-hmm. when, when Gala breezed into Cork's bar, the the overtures that he made towards Dax, were, that was so Ferengi. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Ooh. Just real yeah. slimy and uh-huh. overt. Yeah. It's probably she didn't turn around and, you know, just backhand him at least. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think she's come to expect that. I think that she was kind of like saying if he doesn't. I must be doing something wrong. It still doesn't make it right, though. I, I, I think I, you know, see her just turn around like, hey, hands off, you know? Right. Anyway. <laughs> um, also, I do like uh, seeing that owning one's own moon still a thing and still an aspiration for Quark. <laughs> you know, Gotta little, have goals. Yep, yep. A little <laughs> uh, a reference to something that has popped up before. And, um, oh, gosh, the, there was that line that Jake had to uh, Miles. Like, oh, when's Professor O'Brien due back from Bajor? <laughs> well, well, kid, uh, gosh, what, what a, a week, uh, a season, a year? I mean, you know, she does have another child to keep her company now. So, you know, good luck planning to see her again. You know what time it is, John? What time? It is time to spin the wheel <laughs> of... Of it, what was it? The wheel of excuses. excuses. Yeah, <laughs> just get rid <laughs> this time. Of... Oh, oh, yeah. And we land on she's on some type of sabbatical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she she's on Bajor. There's just yeah doing Bajor things <laughs> with Molly. <laughs> yes, in tow. Of course, of course. Yeah. yeah, here, here, Miles, take the baby. Yeah, I know that you're on your own. I know you work like 16 hours a day, but uh, yeah, I, I'll see you. I, I don't need the baby. Well, that's the thing. Like, okay, so I understand that there's a, there's an obvious narrative that's being made here, but practically, in the entire station, there's not a single nursery where Miles can drop off his child so that he doesn't take him to, oh, I don't know, 
like hot zones where EPS conduits aren't flaring up or, you know, the engineering pit or in harm's way of some kind. You would think where all those winged hatchlings that Jake took care of for uh, for the lieutenant, you know, where. Oh, that's right. Where are they? Because, yeah, (laughs) you would think that there's somebody somewhere who has to take care of them. I mean, I know all kidding aside, but you would think that would be something on a station. You would think, you know, a station that think. big because it yeah. is a very big station. Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. Um, Got to say, hey, well, you, you could maybe put the kids into a uh, hollow suite and you have uh, holodeck, holodeck <gasps> Miles and Keiko. Huh? Oh, my God. That's a great idea. No, seriously. Yeah. Why wouldn't they do that? that would be... Holodeck program babysitter yes. 101. Yes. You know, boom, done. That would work. That would work. Now, instead of that. We get holodeck weapons or hollow suite weapons. And I'll say, look, I don't love weapons, but I do love the idea of a hollow suite showroom for literally anything. Because why not? You know, cars, whatever it is you need to buy, boom, here's the, the hollow suite version of it. Make it whatever you want. Test it out. You're not going to hurt anybody. Um, but if it is a weapon and you're testing it out, how do you know that it's behaving correctly? Because all those explosions we saw, they were all the same. It was all the same <laughs> superimposed explosion. Like, oh, this is great. Well, how do you know? You shot a guy, then you shot a ship. Then it just, they all are going to explode because it's a hollow suite. But they explode. They do. They blow it up right. real good. Yeah. Pew, pew, boom. <laughs> Must be awesome. Right? Yes. Yes, indeed. Okay, so I love the whole kind of, you know, transacting with the data pad and using your finger to make that transaction. Mm-hmm. But that's assuming that all species have fingerprints, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You, or some type of like thermal ID. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because, it, and it, maybe it's easier to change on another species too. We don't know that either. So can you imagine a changeling? He could pretty much... Oh, seal and deal in any contract ever. Exactly. Oh, maybe maybe that little thing is taking like a DNA sample through the thumb. I don't know. Then you get into a whole problem of privacy. Yeah, we all kinds right. of uh, interesting problems there. Mm-hmm. Interesting that Haggath uh, is taking Quark's cut right away. It's like until your debt is paid, you won't see any profit, and that is uh, actually pretty smart uh, for a guy like Haggath dealing with Quark. Gotta say. You know, we could, I mean, there are so many jokes to be made about this, but Mm -hmm. honestly, though, that's just like, okay, so if capitalism still reigns supreme in the 24th century, Mm -hmm. why wouldn't wage garnishing also exist? Of course. Of course. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Got to. I mean, it's essentially he's, and he's securing his talent, i.e. Quark, by letting Quark not squander Mm -hmm. his profits. Yep. Precisely. So so why wouldn't I think you? that's pragmatic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I do love a good Cisco Smackdown. Uh we don't have a ton of Cisco in this episode, but uh his railing on Quark, I will nail you to the wall. Oh man. That that he, yeah. oh he's so good in that. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. When he, he that's the kind of stuff that's like yeah. Mm-hmm. When you get like little sprinkles of super intense Cisco, mm-hmm. that's what you need. They go a long way. Yeah. Yeah. They go a long way. Yep. I thought it was neat that, you know, when when Cisco and Kira had to kind of like come in and say, like, you got to release him, the Bajoran provisional government yeah. says, oh, we kind of owe this guy Haggith a little bit of something. Yeah. I always would have, I thought it would have been neat if uh, Kira was like, you know what, I'm done with all this. And she pulls out like this old rusty gun and uh, says, 
this was like the last of my keepsakes from the war. I don't want it anymore. And you can have it since you're going to be selling it anyway. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, that would be uh, like an appropriate thing for her. Yeah. And even with Bajor, like it's a different government now. It's a different time. Would they really stick their necks out for this guy? I don't know. He, he must have just had the friends in the right places in the provisional government. Maybe Shakar. Maybe Shakar could be did some deals with could him. Could be, you know, could be, yeah, yeah, something that you're not proud of, and maybe even a little blackmail on the side. True, true. Uh, speaking yeah. of digging into Star Trek's past, how about the Metron Consortium? Are are these the same Metrons who put Kirk up against the Gorn? I don't know about the Metrons. I do about the Metrones. <laughs> yeah. I know about the Metrones. Okay. Um, yeah. And I do believe that they were also beings of enlightened energy that took on physical form on, you know, when Kirk and, and the Gorn were fighting. Mm-hmm. So exactly why would they need weapons? Yeah, I, I, I don't I, I don't get it um, because you know that they're advanced because they show up in glowing light and light wearing togas. And that that is always Star Trek's indication that this is a much more advanced uh, species. So. Well, well, of course. Yeah, why would they be doing this? We we don't know. Okay. Well, may, maybe they didn't need weapons. Maybe they just needed to kind of like get, you know, restocked with sulfur and coal and diamonds and rope. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that could be it. That could be. You know. uh, now, there is a food scene here. So, of course, I have to bring it up. Uh, those dishes mm-hmm. that Quark is presenting uh, that he will prepare for the region. Very impressive. Very colorful. It's hard to tell exactly what's there. But, you know, like in a lot of Star Trek, you start with a base of noodles, usually darkly colored, like udon or something, or buckwheat noodles. And you throw on something spiky or brightly colored. Boom, it's alien. There was a weird thing in this scene, though. I don't know if you noticed it. The one in the foreground, you got like three or four people holding these trays and they have the little like neon light under them. Is the actor acting scared or was that dish just so heavy with that lighting effect that they were just shaky as it stayed in the shot? (laughs) Because every time I watched it, I I just like, wow, that, that person's really shaking with that tray of food. Are they kind of spindly, so it kind of over-exaggerated, you know, the the shakiness of them? I, I thought be. they were maybe yeah. somewhat alive, maybe. Oh, okay. You know? Alive, sure. I'll give them that. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I was looking at this scene, and of course, I thought about you immediately. I know John's going to make mention of this scene because it's a long buffet yeah. shot, yeah. right, of food. Mm-hmm. But, okay, so we could try and figure out what all kind of like the, the real-time equivalent is for these cuisines, but... Do sea urchins actually exist on other planets as well? Why not? I, you know, uh, sea urchins are a, a, an ancient kind of species, and it just seems like early in a planet's development, those could come along anyway. So, sure, why not? I say where you have a sea, you've got a sea urchin. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. I personally would have... I would have preferred unagi over sea urchin, but that's just me. Okay, fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. Um, so. That that scene, though, that you know, uh, with Haggath berating Quark and then tasting and praising the food as a joke. I, I just, you know, in real life, I hate that kind of thing in people, and you know, you don't come across it often, but it, it's a bullying thing, and. It, it almost that scene was distantly related to the one in Goodfellas where Joe Pesci is hazing Ray Liotta when they first meet. Right. You know, it's just you know, bully's gonna bully, and oh, oh, it just gets under my skin as it's intended to. I get it. That is exactly what that scene is intended to do to keep 
showing you how bad a guy Haggath really is and can't be trusted, etc. But, oh, man, it's stuff like that that really got to me. Well, the great thing about Burkhoff's casting is that he plays unhinged so well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, he would literally, he could turn on you. He could be like, just like I said, showering you with Andorian glass beads or just flipping in a second and like, you know, tearing your ears off or something. You know, just he's mm-hmm. so, he's psychotic. He's like so perfectly balanced psychosis. Oh, yeah. yeah. As, as, uh, as his character is obviously, you know, really, really, really bad guy. Oh, yeah. As we're talking about weapons in this and figuring out the best deployment of uh, killing these 28 million, uh, we mentioned prions, prion, that, a real thing, a, a mutated folded protein that can transmit its shape to healthy similar proteins, usually causing degenerative neural disorders. See also mad cow disease. There's your Boston legal tie-in. And, uh, oh, oh, and we have a reference to Quadro Triticale. Of course, we remember that from Tribbles. And uh, hopefully, I, I haven't checked lately, but hopefully still available as a beer, which to specify, uh, that is a Belgian quadruple made with Triticale, which is a wheat-rye hybrid. So uh, stone brewing, if you're still making it, you know who to send it to. One last thing, a little more serious note here. Did Dax's extreme reactions to Quark feel natural to you, feel uh, motivated and earned here? Because they seemed a little strange to me. There are strange pairings from time to time in the episodes, you Mm -hmm. know, especially when you're trying to pair up someone with, uh, you know, kind of like the Jiminy Cricket or the consciousness or the conscience of, of the character who's, you know, in questioning himself or herself. I didn't buy it. Yeah. It just... First of all, I didn't know that they were that close, that they would be chilling, playing tango, you know, just for, you know, strips of gold-pressed latinum. And secondly, why would she be so irate? Most of the time, I've always just seen any of the command staff just kind of shrug him off and let this actually some type of, you know, some type of law or some type of, you know, um, you know something that Odo wants to bust him for. Everything else after that, though, is just kind of like he's just kind of like a nuisance. I, I feel like if we need anybody to put Quark in his place, it needs to be Kira, typically. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just I, I didn't buy it was uh, Dax. But, hey, you know, we, we can return to that in the wrap up. Someone once said, you can get further with a kind word and an unregistered black market disruptor than you can with just a kind word. We'll get back to business as usual, but first a word from this week's sponsors. Hey, uh, Norman, let, let's say that um, I'm concerned about privacy, mm-hmm. and, and not just online privacy, but, uh, but real-world privacy. So let, let's say let's contrive a situation like, let's say, um, oh, I'm in the men's room, mm-hmm. um, maybe at an office, something like that. You would assume, right, that um, I would close the door. Uh, for for something private like that, right? Right. So I want to maintain my privacy by closing a simple thing like closing the door because I wouldn't want random passers by to uh, to peek in. That would just make sense, right? Makes I, sense I, to I, me. Yeah, I, I would think so. I'm glad that you agree with me. Um, so using that same logic, I would say that using the internet without ExpressVPN 
sort of like that situation, sort of like me walking into a uh, a men's room and and not closing the door. That would just be crazy, right? Well, I mean, privacy is everything. You know, you don't it want is. anyone walking by as you are having a private moment in the same way you do not want your internet service provider, say Comcast or Verizon or whatever service provider you use to know every single website you visit. And and what's worse is they can sell this information to ad companies and tech giants who will use this data to target you. So ExpressVPN, much like closing that door in the bathroom, puts a stop to this. It creates a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that your online activity can't be seen by anyone. I use ExpressVPN on all my devices. It works on everything, my phone, my laptop, routers, so that everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can still be protected, even if they don't have ExpressVPN. And I would say that the best part of using ExpressVPN is that it's easy. I might even say it's as easy as closing the bathroom door. Yes, yes, you just fire up the app, click one button, that's it, and you're protected. Done. And that's why ExpressVPN is the world's number one rated uh, VPN by CNET, Wired, The Verge, countless others. So if you're like me, and you believe that your online activity, as well as personal activity, is your business... Secure yourself by visiting expressvpn.com slash mission log today. Use our exclusive link at expressvpn.com slash mission log and you can get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash mission log. You know, John, something I think about pretty much every day is how much stress I'm under. And I know a lot of people do too, because working from home, the stress of kind of like the global situation of the time. <laughs> yeah. It weighs on us all, whether we know it or not. I mean, you can be, say, in the stratosphere of being an elite athlete. You can just be like one of us, a regular person trying to get through the day. But this kind of stress causes unseen muscle pain and muscle tension. And that's a real thing it, for it, so many of us. It is. And I can tell you, absolutely, I carry that muscle tension right in my back, right in my shoulders, right in my neck, just without fail, without question. Sitting behind a computer for hours and hours at a time or behind a mic, which I love, but it still causes stress on my back. And that's why I've been using Theragun. Uh, it's a handheld percussive therapy device that releases muscle tension using scientifically calibrated combination of depth, speed, and power. And it's quiet. And that's a part of what makes it so great. So I, I've typically been using it. You know, if I've been sitting here at the desk uh, for a long time and I feel my shoulders kind of hunched over, I'll get out the Theragun and uh, put one of the attachments on it and just, you know, let it do its thing on my back and my shoulders. And then uh, when I sort of feel myself at the end of the day, it's time to go to bed. But wow, that tension is back. Time to get out the Theragun again and just in a couple of minutes relaxes me, puts me in a much, much better mood to uh, to go to sleep. And um, it's really cool that the, the all-new Gen 4 Theragun has a proprietary brushless motor that's uh, so quiet you'll, you'll wonder if it's on. So you use that to soothe your aching muscles with its power, amplitude, and effectiveness. Um, and one of the fun things about it, there is an app, the Therabody app, that guides you based on your needs. So if you're like me and it's just, I need to get rid of tension, I need to get rid of muscle strain, I'll use that, I'll pinpoint where that pain is, and it will guide me 
to the best use of the device. Or maybe you're not like me. Maybe you're uh, an athlete. You're going out for a run or coming back from a run. This will guide you through that as well. So if stress relief and tension relief is something that's important to you, then try Theragun for 30 days. There's no substitute for the Theragun Gen 4 with an OLED screen, personalized Theragun app, and the quiet and power you need, starting at only $199. Go to theragun.com slash mission log right now and get your Gen 4 Theragun today. That's theragun.com slash mission log. theragun.com slash mission log. So every character on DS9 has gone through changes and had long arcs. I mean, clearly that is one of the strengths of DS9 is allowing these characters to evolve. And it's interesting to me that sometimes those changes are by design. Sometimes they're happy accidents, like as we talked about in uh, Dr. Bashir, I presume. They just sort of landed on this happy accident. Like, how do we develop Bashir further? What's the secret? Oh, now this answers so many other questions about him. We have seen Quark go from criminal to lovable scamp, and then we have these flashbacks where he's really just like, uh, I wouldn't call him immoral, I would just say amoral to what's going on around him, whether it's the Cardassians in charge or the Federation or whatever. Um, He's also a guy who is going to kill his own brother uh, or conversely be killed by his own brother to the guy who has a conscience about the outcome of his business dealings. Now, I'm not saying it's a bad thing that he's changed, but I I always want to know if that was part of the plan or maybe a realization that they couldn't just keep writing Quark as a potential criminal and get him out of it each time, or that maybe audiences really took to him. So Quark had to have some redeeming qualities. You couldn't just have the audience constantly pulling for the criminal on board. Uh, but I'll pose it another way. Has he had too much root beer? Is this uh, <laughs> is, is something wearing off on him? I pose all of this because I think there's a production reality of how do you write a character? How do you deal with that character over time? You know, five and a half seasons now mm-hmm. versus the in-universe questions like what actually is becoming of this guy? I think it's fair to say that Quark has had this really interesting uh, trajectory about being exiled from his own culture and understanding kind of his role in DS9, how people depend on him, how they've come to his bar post the closing by the FCA, how people have come to rely on him as, I believe uh, Rom said this, as a man of importance Mm -hmm. on the promenade. And he's no longer influenced by the overall Ferengi culture per se, you know, and I think that the root beer is working. Mm-hmm. I really do. Okay. I okay. think that the, that the, uh, the analogy or the allegory of the root beer uh, equating to the Federation, how it is insidious and it's bubbly and light and fun and mm-hmm. it just undermines every single thing that you possibly think should never be able to uh, manipulate you from the perspective of the Federation Quark is becoming a, I wouldn't going to, I'm not going to go as far as saying a good person, but he's becoming a decent person, a decent being. Let's, let's maybe look at it in an in-universe way that 
here's a guy who is resigned to the powers that be when it's the Cardassians who are in charge. And he's just trying to make a living, make a profit, not get killed in the process. And sometimes that means doing unsavory things. Now the Federation comes along. Maybe he has actually evolved into seeing like, oh, wait, there is a better way to do things. And not only is there a better way, these are actually the people who can protect me potentially mm -hmm. from what lies out there. Uh, whether it's the Klingons, who we've just been through a, a skirmish with, whether it's whatever is coming from the Dominion or this new alliance with the Cardassians, maybe maybe it's a bit of growth in that respect for him. That That's like, oh, wait, th there is something to be gained from a principled position, not just staying out of the line of fire. I think that there's obviously a certain level of quirk that um, exposure to so many noble and principled people mm -hmm. in some way has at least proven to him that not every transaction that's successful has to do with the exchange of goods or money for profit. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, that's obviously the Ferengi cultural way. However, the Ferengi culture isn't on display on Deep Space Nine. Yeah. And sometimes you can't help but be, you can't help but your thinking can be modified by your surroundings. You know, so take, for example, on a normal day, most of what you're thinking about is work. You're not really thinking about what you want to do for the rest of the day, your free time. Everything is molded by your decisions at work, your friends at work, the experiences at work. Mm -hmm. Never really a thought of your own. And sometimes you take that home with you. That's quirk. Quark is molded by the experiences of who he, who or what or, or, or what he experiences every day on a daily basis. And it's mostly Federation protocol, people who are trying to do good by other people, the yeah. root beer scenario, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's not that it all hits him at once. It has slowly chipped away him over time. Yeah. Right. And the Cardassians obviously was a completely different model. And that's where Quark's like, I need to make the choices in order for me to survive to the next day. Yeah. Of course, that's what the Cardassians would bring out in him. Yeah. And of course, that's the model that he would have to dig himself out of when the Federation arrived. And interesting you know? that this is all with the, the underlying uh, Ferengi indoctrination that the only thing important is how you make a profit, regardless how that affects other people. But every now and then, they'll throw in something that is a little more principled. I mean, whether you want to say that, uh, okay, we're going to let uh, war is good for profit uh, be outweighed by peace is good for profit. It's <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny that those two rules of acquisition are right up against each other. They're back to back, yeah. Well, let, all right, so let's talk about war. Let's talk about the weapons that are at the center of the story, because I, I thought this was interesting. There are other times that Star Trek has dealt with similar things, but what I liked about this episode is that it isn't so much a story about weapons the way that, say, Next Gen's The Arsenal of Freedom is. Uh, and that one, for those who may not remember, that was where the Enterprise crew find the automated display weapons of a long-dead civilization, and uh, they sort of, you know, had destroyed themselves in the process. And, and it's about the insanity and the kinds of weapons we build. 
in ensuring that we can and will destroy each other with alarming ease. In this story, it's really about the moral and ethical toll that should take on the merchants, but somehow doesn't. It doesn't matter how much more sophisticated the weapons get. It doesn't matter how many more you can kill. Uh, somebody else will always need to kill more, and therefore you have a better opportunity to sell more of those weapons. And uh, that was such a good scene with Gala talking to Quark because it it is easy to look at the stars and think, well, whatever is happening out there is someone else's problem. You know, mm -hmm. the farther and farther away that they get, it really is someone else's problem. What could I possibly have to do with it? Even though there are two people who have a lot to do with it because they will be selling the tools by which those civilizations are, are snuffed out. And it's also a little bit of the, uh, it, it's kind of the trolley problem where, you know, you could look at it as sort of historically, who was it that said that, you know, one death is a millions are a statistic you know the mm -hmm. further we get away from uh the the reality of those deaths the easier it is to stomach in the here and now it's very easy for us to point to a place on the other side of a globe and say that what's happening over there doesn't matter because it doesn't affect us you know so right. what if one regime constantly violates human rights uh, or or subjugates women or kills people of different faiths. It doesn't matter as long as their checks don't bounce when they buy our weapons. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to name names here. I'm not going to name countries here. You all are smart enough to Google and, you know, figure out what you want to about that. Uh, but we, we do it in small ways. You know, we, we allow certain conveniences in our lives that we may have because of the exploitation of others. But then on a much scarier and much bigger scale, we also turn the other cheek when there is a matter of political or monetary convenience for us, even though it literally translates to the deaths of others. And every now and then we'll hear about one or two that, you know, really get our ire worked up. But that's a rarity that that actually happens. We're actually okay with that happening on the day-to-day -day because we don't hear about it that much, and it's too far away for it to really be a problem in our own backyards. Yeah, that scene with uh, Gala and Quark staring out of the promenade is probably one of the more stirring scenes I've seen in a while in Star Trek because it's so relevant. Mm -hmm. And especially because, and I absolutely agree with you, that the more distanced you are from from the uh, the plight of others, the easier it is just to forget about that people are suffering. You know, like, and especially, like, if I can't do anything about it, why should I even care? Yeah. Right? So, yeah. and the justification of, well, I'm selling half my weapons to this side of this equation and the other half to this side of the equation, and they're both trying to kill each other anyway. So what's the harm in me making a little bit of side profit? Right? Yeah. I mean, they're going to do it regardless of if I sell them or if you sell them or if somebody else sells them. Yeah. Right, And what we're talking about here is we're talking about kind of like the capitalism creep in the 24th century, mm -hmm. right? Because the capitalists of the 24th century, i.e. the Ferengi or these arms dealers or people that are they're basically monetizing um, and increasing their profit margin off the death of others, they don't care about how many people that, or how many lives they destroy, how many stars that they blink out of the universe, mm -hmm. right? They care about the margin. 
And that's where, I mean, the scene where the regent says, you know, I want 8 million dead. Sure, that's shocking. And then another 20 million on top of that. And all Haggath death is like, so exactly how are we going to calculate the, uh, to these losses to, to secure the regent's needs? That is the final solution. Yeah. Discussion. Yeah. It becomes a math problem, a logistical problem, rather exactly. than a, 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 well, we would say human for us, but yeah, a personal issue. Yeah. I was bone chilling watching yeah. that. And even though I know yeah. Quark was trying to, trying to insert some humor or try to even make a point through humor, the way that both Gala and Haggis just brushed it off, you know, it was just... It was disturbing to know that that is still happening in the 24th century. Again, there's a certain, there's a certain vision of Gene's vision mm-hmm. that I still believe uh, in, in the optimism and kind of like the, the greater um, aspirations of humanity. And then I still have to remember that who is perpetrating these crimes, at least in this story, aren't necessarily all human. Haggith sure. is. But now you're dealing with all these other cultures, which means that it's an easy way for, I say, the writers to slip in that allegorical equation of what if the worst parts of humanity still existed in the 24th century? And how do we approach addressing those through non-human cultures? Yeah. Because obviously the Federation, we, you know, we would never be doing that. I mean, yeah. that's against... That's the rules of being Star Trek, right? But the aliens can. The Cardassians, the Bajorans, right. the Ferengi, right? So I always found it very fascinating that we, we have to study those points of view through those characters. But at the same time, though, those, those, those issues, those, those human weaknesses still exist yeah. as a storytelling standpoint. Well, I'll tell you something that is very human in all of this, and that, that is the sort of seduction that's going on with Quark. And... You know, I I sort of titled this under Honor Among Thieves. You know, we have this elegant dinner scene where the regent is, you know, talking about honor and how betrayal is the one unforgivable thing. And and sure, you know, they, they all have their limits around what is acceptable or not. But at the end of the day, they're crooks benefiting from the exploitation and deaths of others. Um, sure, they're making money, they're spending it wildly, uh, they have aspirations to do all these other things. Pork wants his moon still. Um, and they all have their own justifications for what they do. And this layer, like I said, of sophistication, but they're, they're, they're criminals. They're, there's no simple way around that at all. One of my favorite sayings is a person who is nice to you but is not nice to the waiter is not a nice person. And yeah. here is Quark's first problem. Well, it was Gala's problem first, and then he brought that problem to Quark. But uh, Quark's inability to see through this veneer and see through like, oh, wait, this guy, as much as he may lay it on thick, as much as he may put money in front of me or whatever power or benefits come with that money, this will lead to no good no matter what. And there's not going to be an easy way out no matter what. You know, one thing that we never really put together was the uh, the, the coincidental nature of, of Gala arriving just as Quark's prospects tanked. Right. Sure. It wasn't yeah. like it was a, a span of years that he's, you know, that Cork lost his fortune. He's about to lose the bar. He has all he has basically his 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 lobes up in hawk. 
But it's just like almost instantly Quark loses all of the rest of his money. And then Gala comes in and offers him this deal and then Mm -hmm. confesses to him that eventually I want to get out and you being my successor. How have we not seen that this was set up by Gala the entire time? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, it was just kind of like this revelation and the timing is just so perfect to, Hey, you know what? I want to get out. I think that uh, Haggath is um, a psycho, mm-hmm. and I've made my money, and I don't want to live under the fear of his regime anymore. If I make one mistake, I'll end up like Farak, yep. and I'm out. And yeah. Quark, you know, sorry, but I tanked all your stocks. It was me. You know, right. I manipulated, right. I manipulated the whatever trading that you've been doing, and then now you needed to actually basically, you had no choice but to accept my help. I'm just going to and, hand you another ambitious Ferengi who, you know, wants success as much as anybody, and then to make him look really good in your eyes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, Quark, you are being played, my friend. Big time. Yeah. yeah. And it's Big too time. bad because that that is, again, this very human thing is you know, the blinders tend to go on when the prize that we want is so uh, so close, so tangible. And for Quark, that prize is the money to not only get him out of debt, but get him back up to this profitable status that he wants. And also, I mean, in a way, freedom is a sort of currency. So I think, you know, Gala is embracing the whole, you know, never let family stand in the way of profit. Yeah. Profit for him yeah. being freedom. Right. Right. You know, I uh, I saw another interesting thing in this episode that I wasn't sure if it was pertinent or not to the discussion, but it is it, it has something to say about uh, the desensitization of simulated violence, and it's the it's basically the VR weaponry scene, yeah, where Quark is allowing his buyer to basically just kill indiscriminately with the weapons that he's going to buy. Mm-hmm. That's something that I see happening a lot in say VR where. People, the VR is so accurate now that you can arm yourself with pretty much anything that's out there for sale. You know, like machine guns or knives or tanks, even. Mm-hmm. And it gets to that point where have the politicians been right this entire time about the the influence that video games, especially as real as they are now and as realistic as they are now can influence somebody's ability to do harm Hmm. because of the desensitization of the violence that you're perpetrating in the game as opposed to outside the game. The, the, that distinction is no longer being made, especially with people that are struggling with reality, Mm -hmm. essentially, you know, not being able to distinguish between fantasy and reality because the games are so accurate. Yeah. And I found that at least, you know, with Quark's, holodecks and the quality that he can recreate these simulations that also just kind of like adds to the further you know the the further distancing of people's ability to not even feel emotion for the people that they're 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 going to exact violence on with these weapons because notice real anyway yeah say and notice in the simulation that what we see is that alien destroying another alien that is completely head to toe in armor so we can't tell the fleshy organic parts of that being that he killed and then he destroys a ship uh, again in vr in the hollow suite but we don't actually see a uh we don't see anything that's gruesome um when he destroys those so i would take that argument actually a little bit different way i i don't 
I don't completely disagree with you. I, I think there is a point to be made about that. I'm less concerned about the angle of the argument there that says that maybe it desensitizes people who maybe take somebody who is, you know, passive, benign, whatever, and would make them into a violent person. I, I, I think, you know, psychologically, there are arguments on both sides of that. I think what I'm interested in here is the idea of like, we're almost treating this like uh, like drone warfare. Okay, of you're you're creating yeah. a separation between the person who pulls the trigger and where that weapon is that's actually doing the damage. In this case, we're testing it out in VR. We're showing off like, oh, here's what could happen. And then for Quark, he gets to rest easy at night because. Well, I just sold something to somebody who was playing a game in a simulation. I don't actually have to be there when that person or that person's army ransacks and destroys a city or ships or a world or whatever where there are living beings. You know, so it it does, in the respect that you're talking about, create this layer of separation between the uh, the the commerce and the reality, the outcome of that action. Right. And it also, it's a training tool. I mean, mm-hmm. they're, they're yeah. training tools in, in every respect. Yeah. So basically you're, you are giving someone the tools to be able to do and act and fantasize through, I mean, this incredibly realistic technology, something that they may or may not have planned about living out, but now can. And now, it's somehow feeding into a certain darkness within them that they can't stop. And I think that I find that just at least, you know, in, in real terms in Mm -hmm. real time terms, that's, that's terrifying, but also that it's been perfected 150 years from now. So it, and it doesn't necessarily have to be based or, or anchored to humanity. It's now available for everyone. So that's, you know, it's, it's a cautionary tale of technology and what it can do to you. Quark might have learned the two greatest things in life. Always read on your cousin's super sketchy friends and never keep your mouth shut. Well, John, I have to ask you the ultimate question. Have you been able to refuse my offer to get to the end of this episode and talk about the morals, meanings, and messages. I, I, I thought you were going to say, uh, do you want to make a deal? And <laughs> the, the, oh, yeah. Ready, ready I'm not for Monty that, Hall. <laughs> <laughs> if, only, if only it were just a game. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about business as usual. I'll start with the unpopular opinion first, uh, which is to say this. Stephen Burkhoff is great he is a great actor he brings everything that's needed to a role like this sophistication menace gravitas a little bit of humor danger etc he's good because he's always good but here's the unpopular part i don't love the way this character is written He's a little too arch, a little too obvious. It's not him. I think it's the writing because some of the lines he has are overwritten in a way to make him appear erudite and powerful. But some of that dialogue comes across as clunky and trite. 
sorry, Bradley and David, that that's just the way, like in the final read, it comes across on paper. It can look like one thing, but when there's too much, it can just be too much. Not to take away from Steven because wow, is he awesome. I just think some of that dialogue needed another pass. Also in the negative column, and you and I touched on this just a tiny bit during the observations, which is that scene with Dax in her quarters when Quark shows up, her reaction to him and what's going on, that should have been a scene with Kira. Kira is the one who is invested in what's happening. Kira is the one who understands the politics of what's going on as well. She is the one who typically would put Quark in his place. Mm-hmm. I felt like every bit of the relationship here between Quark and Dax was unearned. They do have a relationship. They have this playful relationship that we've had develop over the last five years, but it ain't that. So I I felt that was out of place. And finally, also a stylistic thing. Uh, I don't know if the dream sequence, which was very A Christmas Carol, I don't know if that was totally necessary. You could accomplish the same thing with real world scenes. Mm -hmm. Again, hello, Kira. (laughs) But whatever, it it gets the point across. Okay, now I'm, I'm done with all of that. I'm done with all of that unpopular opinion stuff. Lawrence Tierney is as excellent as he should be. And apparently, this is interesting, he had a stroke shortly before filming. So it is even more impressive that he turned in his usual great performance here. Um, Because he he was not at 100% of his game then. But man, he just, uh, he walks on stage and he owns it. I thought at first that I wasn't going to love this episode. But it grew on me each time I watched it. I like messing with Quark's loyalties and his sense of morality. This was really a great episode to do that. We don't have to land a perfect turnaround for him. Absolutely not. He he doesn't need a revelation here to become a new man. He just needs to have been pushed far enough. And that's what we get. And I think it works really well. Uh, the episode rests almost entirely on Armin's strengths. And there are many. Um, I also appreciate that this is a story that works on its own and honestly could appear anywhere. And maybe it it should have or could have appeared earlier in the series, like a season three episode to then really see where we end up with Quark down the road. Because we, we started with he's a guy who is capable of killing his brother and doesn't care who he profits off of to... Oh, he went through some stuff with the Cardassian occupation. Now, really, let's turn him around. But look, I'm I'm happy to get this exploration of him wherever we get it. It justifies making Quark, I won't say softer, but just better, morally better, more acceptable, more a guy that you can actually pull for. So um, I, I think it's excellent. And it just it feels like a show dealing with Star Trek morals meanings messages which we'll get into in a moment before we do how about uh, how the episode holds up for you norman well once again after watching this episode several times i do what i usually do and i have my coffee and i have my pipe and i text john early in the morning and i say <laughs> wow it's awesome that we had a really easy moral show to discuss total breeze because yeah it's like because i saw the beginning i'm like ah oh, okay this is going to be very tropish you know mm-hmm. we've seen this kind of story before 
and yet we didn't. You know, mm-hmm. there are obviously narrative elements. Like there's there's an old saying now, or maybe it's a new saying that's a little bit older, where you know you've pretty much seen every story that's been told. You just have to see it in a different way and in different context. Right. And in this case, and in this case. What I love about this episode is that we finally get another really good character exposition and a character development episode. Mm-hmm. And this time it's Quark. And I love Armin Shiverman as Quark. I've said this many times on shows before where my favorite characters are actually the alien characters because we get to understand the trials and tribulations, if you will, <laughs> of... Yeah. Of humanity that is not explored as fully in the human characters or the characters of the Federation because we can't really upset the apple cart there when it comes to the utopian future that the Federation is supposed to represent. Right. That being said, now we can explore those those the human frailties as they exist now in the 24th century through the allegory of the alien races. And what I love about this episode is that we get to see, again, Quark and another leap of character development and we're seeing that a lot now in season five. We saw it with Bashir and his genetic alteration secret. We saw it with Odo falling in love and risking heartbreak. Mm-hmm. And now Quark. And this is something that you would never see in a, in a Ferengi. And it's the crisis of conscience. A crisis of moral conscience in a Ferengi. <laughs> right? Yeah. And yeah. what I love about this and how they explored it is that he never really betrayed his culture. He never really betrays himself, but he really pushes the boundaries of what he can get away with in terms of staying somewhat loyal to his culture, but more importantly, loyal to his new morality. Something that is changing him because, again, of the proximity he is to very good and noble people of noble purpose. Mm -hmm. He's not going to change overnight. But he's slowly being won over by the the cloying, sickly sweetness <laughs> of the Federation. Yeah. So also, I mean, when you want to look at the practical aspect of this episode and look a little bit more deep and behind the scenes, you're right. This this show, this episode really falls very, very strongly and lands on the shoulders of Armin Shimmerman. And think about how much he has to uh, emote through when it comes to the latex. He's probably next to Renee, probably the most, he has the most application on him when it comes to like latex and prosthetics and think about what he gets through, mm-hmm. through all that, especially his eyes, yeah. his eyes convey so many great emotions and the moral and ethical struggle that he's dealing with. That's so well conveyed in his eyes and in some of his just nuanced performances. I think this is one of his standout performances of the series. Yeah. I agree. I agree. As we get into morals, meanings, messages here, I'm thinking about how you've described this journey for a Ferengi, but specifically this Ferengi quark. And I don't know how many times on our show or in real life I've said, you know, it boggles my mind when people finally, after decades of life around other people, land on a more accepting, more moral position. You know, to me, the default should be, say, let's do things that don't endanger or kill other people. <laughs> that, yeah, that should be a starting default moral position, right? But some people aren't there. And it takes a change. It takes something to happen for them to arrive at that position. It boggles my mind that that is the case, but it is. And here, with a guy like Quark, 
he did that. He, he went through that journey and arrived at a more moral, more ethical position, at least as far as those 28 million people were concerned. And thank goodness he did. Don't know why he wasn't there before, but thank goodness he did. Let's explore the other morals, meanings, messages here. I kind of, I, I watched this and I wondered if this was the anti-a-private-little-war episode or mm. maybe, <laughs> <laughs> going back to TOS, uh, you know, uh, right. mutual arms build of uh, those two sides. Or, or maybe it's the logical conclusion of let that be our last battlefield. Mm. So... In both instances, and now in this one, we've resigned ourselves to the idea that both sides will keep on fighting until they've killed each other. So what then is our moral obligation, or what is the pragmatic route to help avoid the most damage? And this episode takes us on a couple of twists. We, we're set up with the concern about Quark getting himself into an illegal get-rich-quick scheme. Again, he you know, is seduced by these people around him when he really should know better. Then we're worried about him getting in over his head and needing to get out. Then we're really ending on a grim but happy note that Quark is okay. <laughs> and for the people who are going to fight it out, well, we'll just put them in a corner and say, fine, fight it out, kill each other, just not us. Right. Yeah. It's an interesting way to resolve that problem, which is in its conclusion debatable as well. But there's a consequence for everything that we do. Sometimes we don't know exactly what those are. And we have to make good ethical choices based on the information that we have, even if it's incomplete. And the other thing here that's explored in this episode is that greed is a powerful thing. Some people align themselves so to their own needs, whether it's uh, revenge or wealth or power or whatever, plug in, whatever you want there, that they lose the empathy necessary to make those good decisions. Everybody has a price, it seems, at least Quark does in his representation of parts of humanity. It's just a matter of negotiation. And uh, thankfully, he found out that the cost was far too high on this one. Uh, how about you, Norman? Well, I'm glad that you mentioned that uh, everybody has a price, because that is another rule of acquisition. Right? <laughs> yes, they, they write yeah. themselves. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, if if I may to uh, to round out uh, your references to the original series about mm-hmm. you know these 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 episodes that um, that in many ways are spiritually connected to uh, business as usual, I would also throw in a taste of Armageddon, you know, because mm-hmm. now you're mm-hmm. talking about distance, basically distance drone warfare, where war has become so neat and tidy, you know, mm-hmm. you've <laughs> perpetuated it for over five hundred years, you know, you don't get to see the the uh, the devastation and the horror of war, right? So what does it matter if you just keep bombing your like, like sending people into death chambers just because the casualties lists say so? Sure, sure. Right. So that's yeah. that's a, I think spiritually connected to this as well. Yeah. But um, I also think that you know this is and I thought I was going to land on it fairly easily, but I, I did it in a different way. I thought about it in a different way. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of the episode when Gala arrives and bas- and has this solution to all of Quark's woes. What I saw at the very beginning was what everyone has probably seen in once or twice in in their uh, 
in their fandoms as the the Faustian contract. Oh, absolutely. Right, the Faustian yeah. contract. Yeah. So it's quite possibly one of the most recognized moral dilemmas in the history of narrative, fictional or not. I mean, how many of us have made that quiet deal with the devil, mm-hmm. right? Or with God, mm-hmm. or some people believe they're just different sides of the same coin to offer up whatever price needs to be paid, whatever sacrifice needs to be paid to save a loved one from dying or to save him from sickness or falling in love. Yeah. And, and in this case, it was for Cork to be showered with riches, to get him out of poverty, to secure his financial wealth, to buy that moon. What does he need to do in order to do that? Who does he need? Who's, what deal does he need to strike with the devil in order for that to happen? This is the Faustian bargain. This is the deal with the devil. And I looked deeper in this. I want people to have a better understanding and put the definition of this into the context of this episode. And on the the Encyclopedia Britannica website, it describes the Faustian bargain as a pact whereby a person trades something of supreme moral Mm. or spiritual importance, such as personal values or the soul, for some worldly or material benefit, such as knowledge, power, or riches, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The Faustian bargain is made with a power that the bargainer recognizes as evil or immoral, Faustian bargains are by nature tragic or self-defeating for the person who makes them because what is surrendered is ultimately far more valuable than what is obtained, whether or not the bargainer appreciates that fact. So I found that like I found that so um, immaculately at play in this episode because and probably the greatest character, um, the one of the greatest character evolutions uh, for Quark is that he made the choice not to. Uh, not to make good on the Faustian contract to, to break his deal with the devil and to find a better and moral way to move forward. Right. Um, and you did mention greed as being a, you know, like a, a powerful, um, a, a powerful motivator for Quark. And of course I could bring up one of the greatest sound bites in modern cinema <laughs> history where Gordon Gecko says greed is good. good. Yeah. But again, with in context to this episode, I'd like to, to quote an excerpt from Wall Street, and if you if you superimpose Bud Fox for Quark and for mm. Gala or Hageth as Gordon Gecko, Bud Fox asks, "Tell me, Gordon, when does it all end? How many yachts can you water ski behind? How much is enough?" And Gecko replies, "Buddy, it's not a question of enough. It's a zero sum game. Somebody wins, somebody loses." Money itself isn't lost or made. It's simply transferred from one perception to another, like magic. We pull the rabbit out of the hat while everybody else sits around their whole life wondering how we did it. Well, Cork knows exactly how they do it. The question still remains. Even if one person walks away from that path and saves 28 million lives, how do you stop the next gala or haggith? from recruiting another naive and greedy quark from picking up where he left off. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is at missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. Enjoy all the great Roddenberry podcasts at podcast.roddenberry.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next mission log, Ties of Blood and Water. 
some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. I've got a great idea to make some quick money. You know who's probably in the market for lots and lots of holographic weapons? Aminir 7. And transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.